So, you're welcome to the Change Africa podcast. Um, this is where we have inspiring conversations with the change leaders that are at the helm of the African transformation. We're having our very first live Twitter space session with Bright Simmons to talk about policy, Africa, and Ghana's e levy. This is our very first Twitter space conversation. I'm here with my co host, Daniel Merki. Hello. Good morning, Bright Yes, good morning. How are you doing? I'm doing very well. Thank you for inviting me. Uh, thank you for accepting our invitation. Bright Simmons has, uh, as we know, done a lot in the policy space. I'm going to read what is a very, very impressive resume of Bright Simmons in a second. But Bright, you're here on the Change Africa podcast. This is a podcast that we have to talk about Africa to talk and think through issues with thinkers and doers on the continent. We've had a lot of people joining us from heads of global organizations, and we have had conversations in education, talking about the economies across Africa. And today we have you here to talk about policy and Ghana's e-levy. And we are most um, happy to have you join us for this um, conversation. Thank you very much. Uh, This is the first time I'm using the app, so happy to... I've been taught something new, and I look forward to the exchanges. Okay. Um, let me just read a little bit about Bright Simmons, our host for uh, our guest for today. So Bright is, as we know, the Imani Africa Vice President, and he also is the president of M Pedigree. Yes, Bright Simmons is the patent holding president of technology and technology inventor and president of Pedigree, which we know is an award-winning technology social enterprise reinventing supply chain on three continents to enhance patient and consumer safety in such vital categories as medicine and agro inputs. He is the honorary vice president of Imani, a think tank regularly ranked among the most influential in Africa, a board-level advisor to major science and technology companies, and research institutions such as Microsoft, with recent affiliation to Microsoft, Belgian biopharma company UCB, Ashes University, Africa Population Health Research Center, and the Center for Global Development Study Group on Technology. He's previously served on the World Economic Forum's Africa Strategic Group, having earlier nominated as a young global leader by the same organization. His work in technology has been recognized by with a TED Fellowship, Aspen Braddock Fellowship, and the 2016 CNBC Africa Innovative Business Leader of the Year in 2016, Fortune Marketing named him as one of their world's greatest 50 leaders. So we'll start a conversation off with Bright from an article I wrote about, I wrote about, uh, read about you, and you were kind of forming the etymological foundation of what government me now you were talking about a bank as something as a stone wall and 
that kind of interpretation of government and abiding as well as stays with us even after our colonial past. I want us to start from that foundation and view what government views as their role as policy makers and what the citizenry's role is in that policy making process. Yeah, you are right, absolutely. Um, it, it is a fact that the most popular local word for government in Ghana uh, is Abang, which literally means a stone fortress. And the understanding that history has brought to us is that the Akans started to use that word when they first started to travel. I mean, I mean the forest belt Akans. Obviously, we have a, a very large coastal Akan community as well. But the forest belt Akans, when they started to go trek downwards and encountered European government, which is a very limited kind of government. Most people don't realize that for many, many, many years, um, the Europeans in the forts and castles, they actually paid land rent to powerful chiefs around them because the understanding was that the chiefs owned the land and had given them um, tenancy to be able to establish their forts and castles. So a lot of people assumed that colonialism was something that took place over you know, hundreds of years. It was not like that at all. When the first set of Europeans came on, uh, uh, on the scene, they actually saw themselves as visitors and tenants and merchants and preachers and things like that. And they recognized existing local authority. So one of the most fascinating things that you will see in our history is different chiefs as they ascended in power. I mean, local or native chiefs that ascended in power being given the, the keys to the castles and the forts that were on the coast. And you're having the physical key entitled you to rent. It was much later when the British um, started to invest more in security and started to bring weapons to the coast, cannon fire and, and things like that, that it became apparent that they were providing protection services, which they then costed. And then it became the case that they saw um, that, you know, given that we are providing you with physical protection, usually these were war in internecine wars, you know, wars among different uh, kingdoms on the, on, on the coast and in the hinterlands. Um, and once the British took the side of one party against the other, they will then create the impression that, well, you are living under our protection. So the bond of 1844 was not a colonial charter. It was pr primarily um, protection money. You know, it was based on protection money. It was based on this mandate that the forts had become a major part of the defense of the, of the southern states using their cannon fire and, 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 and soldiers from elsewhere. In that regard, the fortresses on the coast were literally protection devices. They were not necessarily administrative and, and governance institutions. That were not their primary aim. Yes, they did a lot of trading and they tried to resolve some issues. But the period when they started to get involved in um, providing le legal and judicial services, um, things like, you know, administ uh, sorry, adjudicating among major clients, states, and adjudicating between subjects and their chiefs, adjudicating among chiefs, etc. They started to cost that because they felt, well, if you can do these things yourself, you know, if you people can come together and create a framework to do it, and we are going to do it for you, then we're going to charge you for it. And well, if you, you know, our interests are threatened, we also use those um, cannons. And over time, the two fused together. They providing protection to client states and vassal states, and they protecting their own interests, tended to fuse together within a security architecture. And it's that security architecture that is exemplified by the, the notion of a bank. So to wrap up, 
up to up till the bond of 1844 made what has become apparent from 1820 onwards. And what is why is you know that period important from 1817 to 1820? Because that was the peak of Asante power when Asante had marched down to the coast and established its suzerainty over the coastal lands. The coastal states began to realize that they could not match Ashanti power. And it was important to bring in the Europeans as a counterbalancing force. And that then led to a transition from people that were paying rent to local uh, native chiefs uh, and people that recognized the authority of the local uh, monarchies and, 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 and power to people that now were providing protection. And in so doing, had become then overlords. And the process of becoming an overlord meant that the, the, the symbol for their power had to be the one thing that established beyond doubt the contribution they made in that protection, protection racket. So it's like the way the mafia rules Chicago, primarily because if you're a shop owner, you pay them protection money. Uh, otherwise, other gangs will come in and, and, and cause confusion. So you pay this money, not as tribute, but as, um, um, as, a, as a racketeering fee. Now, the biggest symbol of that for the colonial authorities was their stone fortresses. It was very difficult to storm those forts and castles. Indeed, uh, the biggest uh, upset in European-African relations before the Asante Wars uh, was, a, was a, a clever local king called Asumani tricking his way into a castle, taking it over, and then winning the keys by trickery. It was not due to force of arms. It was very difficult to storm the forts and castles and change the, the regime has existed. So Abain became this view of government as a fortress. And you can see the way government reacts when their, their authority is threatened, even ephemerally or metaphorically, because of this notion of fortress government. So that is why I mentioned um, this point about Abain being very exemplary of the way government in the Gold Coast and then Ghana uh, was perceived by the powers that be for many, many, many decades. And it seems that the same notions... Um prevails even now in our democratic governance. Um, but I would like to start off the conversation with what do you think the importance of public policy is and what it means for the people? Do you think that the average Ghanaian or African knows what public policy is, their role in it, and why it matters? So these types of questions are obviously very difficult, and I kind of struggle with it because um, as I've grown older, I've become more and more empirical um, and, and, and more and more conceptual in the way that I see these things. But then conceptual theory building is very difficult. So whether or not Ghanaians are sensitive public policy, my instinct is, uh, my instinct is that they are. Um, I think most Ghanaians generally see a situation where because we've now had democracy for three decades, and I suspect the majority of Ghanaians have only known democracy. I have to check the demographic pyramid again. Uh, but, you know, since 92, there on, um, the majority of Ghanaians are probably under the age of 30. Um, don't quote me on that. I have to check the demographic pyramid. But that would mean that for the most part, they have seen deliberation going on between people purporting to know better how to do things and those that purport to be acting in their interest, arguing why things should be done. When it goes to whether or not they feel empowered to gauge in policy, um, we, we, we can skirt around the, the edges. We can say for sure the deliberation machinery is weaker than it used to be a, at the height of our democratic practice in 2000 when we had the first change in government 
and that change was seen to have been occasioned not by you know the effect of um, either ethnic politics or mass resistance, but it was felt that this was a government that had failed on policy grounds. What were those policy grounds? Macroeconomic stability was threatened. I don't know if you recall, but 1997 to 1998, we had a global crisis, economic crisis centered on uh, Asia. And then we had com combined with that a power crisis centered on the, the, the uncompleted shift from uh, hydropower to thermal power. So we had those two, the, those twin crises force a government to start to operate in a manner that eventually damaged macroeconomic stability. And once macroeconomic stability was damaged, other things then reinforced other things. And um, as the as the accounts like to say, um, things knocked on things. So by 2000, people were tired of inflation. They were tired of the power, intermittent power supply. There was some degree to which they were also tired about human rights abuses that were not completely expunged by the coming into being of the democratic um, constitution in 1993. So those matters were very much at the forefront. I remember as a young student in um, um, a secondary school in Accra, um, and we having a lot of debate, which were fairly policy driven. Um, so I would argue that from 2000 to around 2004, uh, policy matters were very interesting in Ghana. So the reason why the average Ghanaian has almost had things like, you know, single digit inflation and, you know, uh, is because we tended to have very policy driven um, debates. Then from 2004 onwards, um, the government started to realize that patronage politics is well, how they were going to maintain power. Uh, and from that period onwards, my argument is that policy and its centrality in our politics has declined. And what we now see is a greater um, democratic revival in some in, in a funny way. So there's a lot more democratic revival. A lot more people that and the local, at the local level are very active in politics. Um, they know why they don't want an MP. They, you know, they, they are highly engaged. Uh, maybe to the same equivalence of the activist politics you see in the American um, uh, context. So a lot of people, much more than you think. I mean, look at the way when we have primaries, um, the, the passing it generates at the local level, the way people seem to understand that, look, we are sharing the pie and I better get uh, 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 my fair share. And the way they mobilize around, um, you know, my, my person or my, my um, uh, how do I put it? My, um, my, 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 um, my patron. So the way that, Patronage politics has you know, gone to the local level is quite impressive. At the national level, we have an effusion of people talking about power in the, in the Republic. A lot of it's about power and resources and who has what and who, who doesn't. So I think at that level, political revival is at its peak, but policy has declined considerably. Part of that happened with the way the 2008 elections went. First of all, for four years, we'd had significant shift to patronage politics. Um, first of all, who has access to those with power uh, and those with control of our resources and the permutations and calculations that enable you to gain proximity to these people that have power and resources. And then we had a shift in a change in government that was not based primarily on policy um, issues around, of course, we had a, there was a, demo, uh, a global crisis again, there was a 2007 global crisis. That 2007 global crisis was paired with some degree of uh, power 
uh, instability. I don't know if, if, if those of you, if you remember in 2007, 2008, we had some intermittent power issues um, and we had inflationary pressures beginning to build. A lot of that due to the 2007, 2008 uh, global crisis. Um, but the debate at that point compared to the debate in 2000 was not as centered on the policy dynamics as much as issues around um, corruption um, and a lot of that patronage and patrimonial uh, based. So issues around, you know, uh, family and friends or uh, accumulation of wealth. Um, there was also some power distance issues, issues around, uh, for instance, the taxi drivers that felt that um, the, uh, the, the, the attempt to jail people for ab abusing traffic laws um, w w was a sign of um, wickedness. So, you know, interpreting it in Ghanaian, um, uh, in a Ghanaian sense of, of lawmaking and law enforcement, uh, there was a view that um, this was not customary to Ghanaian practice. But it was not really about grand policy per se, you know, the nature of macroeconomic stability and those things. Primarily, I think the 2008 switch in government reinforced the notion that patronage politics was central. And then when the Mills administration came to power, uh, my view of the matter, and of course, this is a very Ghana-centric um, conversation because most of the people on the, of the platform are Ghanaian, but we could broaden out a bit more if that is of interest. But I think in the, by 2009, while the new government tried to restore some degree of um, 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 primacy to policy, they struggle with issues like, you know, uh, one, one uh, premium um, uh, national health insurance, they couldn't do it. Um, they were having great difficulty with educational reform. Uh, single spine became, you know, hugely problematic in terms of the ability to execute on single spine. So there was this retreat from policy, which is what they had entered into government trying to do, and to try and outmaneuver the end and um, MPP in their, uh, at their own game uh, with patronage politics as well. Um, and that was reinforced with issues around the Wyoming scandal, which seemed to suggest that proximity to power leads to um, a greater access to our resources uh, and the like. And on that basis, my view was that by the time we had the, um, the, 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 the internal you know, transition between one NDC president and another, patronage policy has, has taken center stage in, in Ghanaian politics. There was some revival of policy centrality when Free SHS became the dominant team for uh, two sub um, subsequent elections or two successive elections, um, 2012 and 2016. And it, to a certain degree, there was a sense that, you know, um, that was the reason, well, that was part of the reasons that the government had won. Um, but I will feel that a lot of the issues around um, the power crisis and the rest did not bring the same degree of focus on the depth of policy and, and on the details of policy as we'd witnessed uh, in the peak period of 1998 to 2002 thereabout, where HIPIC, uh, where issues around privatization, where issues around water privatization, for instance, uh, I remember ISODEC doing demonstrations uh, end to end, uh, uh, whether or not we should privatize um, Ghana Telecom, uh, uh, which then also resurrected later. If you want to understand the difference between a policy central focus on politics and a patronage centered, uh, centered uh, focus on policy, distinguish between attempts to privatize Ghana Telecom and uh, uh, to introduce management, private sector management into Ghana water, distinguish between the way we treated that as Ghanaians and the way we treated PDS. So in the case of water privatization and the case of telecom, state-owned telecom, state telecom privatization, a lot of the emphasis was on the soundness of the idea itself. 
Is this what we needed to do? And you had a lot of the socialist wing of Ghana politics, members of the socialist wing of Ghana politics, being actively involved in questioning the fundamental rationale for doing this. In PDS, there was almost no debate. <laughs> there was almost no, no debate serious. I mean, there were some workers that said that, you know, their lot may be worse or not. So you had some trade union activity, very self-centered, very focused on their own media circumstances. Nobody took them seriously. And then the privatization happened almost on the blind spot of most of us. How many of us knew about this insurance bond arrangement and the rest of it? And then when eventually it unraveled, there was no discussion about the policy matters. Was the sound? Was the arrangement effective? Um, what, was, what, what was fundamentally different about the outsource operation versus the, 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 the state-run uh, operation? None of that was discussed. The only thing that was discussed was uh, uh, were allegations about the president's relatives negotiating with the concessionaires about potential um, um, uh, uh, entry into the concession. That was the only thing that we discussed throughout the country. And even today, if you ask the average person, what, the, what do they think about PDS? What do they remember about PDS? It's primarily about the patronage politics dynamics of it. Almost nothing about the geopolitics. Why were the United States insistent that we maintain um, that arrangement? What was this, the nature of this, the, the, United, the interest of the United States? Why did privatization proceed in that particular fashion? What was it that was the basis of the belief um, that the way you, you manage the assets um, was to highlight uh, issues around technical management uh, as opposed to administrative reforms, as opposed to changing the grid economics itself, how our grid is structured in terms of feeding tariffs, uh, in terms of transmission tariffs, etc. So none of that discussion ever had in Ghana. We've had a lot of instances also where you will find only a very few civil society organizations trying to bring the matter back to policy. Think of a Japa. Almost no discussion about the fundamental merits of trying to link um, resource-based royalties to your fiscal deficit problems. None of that. The only time we had interest was when the special prosecutor suggested that there was potential insider dealing. I think that is because our eyes, our eyeballs have now shifted dramatically from policy and its implications. We don't really believe that policy matters that very much. And we are now focused on patronage politics and what it means. Who is close to power? How does that get them access to resources? How are those resources being distributed? And I think that's been a major shift in Ghanaian uh, focus. If we did a comparative um, analysis with, Ghana, uh, with Nigeria, Kenya, and a few other places, my sense is that in East and Southern Africa, there is still a certain degree of policy centrality, even though there's a lot of con conversation about raw politics in, in terms of the politics of access to power and, and material resources. But there's a, a greater degree of understanding that you need for if you take for instance Uganda's refusal to allow oil to be produced unless there was processing facilities locally. When you you read the Ugandan press, you get an understanding that people are trying to to get a handle on that from a, from a policy point of view. Uh, and whereas in Nigeria and Ghana, all I see is raw politics, increasingly patronage politics, and very few bulwarks of resistance against this increasing focus only on patronage politics. What I, I think that is also important. And it's certainly politics will primarily be about power and access to resources. I have a sense, though, that we need to understand policy because without fundamental reform, you can keep crying about why some people um, continue to hoard all the material resources and the power, but you're not going to make fundamental change. Yeah, so one could argue that something that has brought policy conversations to light, perhaps more than any other thing, in the maybe 2010s would be the e-levy. Yes, there are a few mm -hmm. other things, but the e-levy has brought up 
almost every single Ghanaian on the street at least has an opinion on the issue, knows what is happening. Um, your argument against the E-Levy has been one of the entire design, not just benchmark of, say, 100 cities or a percentage. So I have what do you... Really... Okay, go ahead. Yeah, so, yeah, I wanted you to kind of make your argument for us, the audience, to start the E-Levy conversation on why the E-Levy is... As a design system is flawed, but it has opportunities to long-term do something, but as it's designed now, maybe flawed. You're absolutely right. So I, I don't have a complete position on E-Levy because how you, you, you position yourself on E-Levy depends entirely on what is put before you. And we had the most ridiculous situation where the government had actually gone to parliament trying to get approval for a tax with potentially wide-ranging effects on the economy. And they had no idea what they were doing. You know, the design of it was not clear. The exemption criteria was not very well thought through. Um, there was almost no thinking that had really seriously gone. They had done some sentiment surveys around the country, and that was probably about it. You could not, you know, hold them to the requirement that at the very least, if you're going to make such fundamental changes, such fundamental shifts to policy on taxation, to accommodate digitization of the economy, you need to think through the impact. You need to think through, if I choose this model versus this other model, what is the trade-offs? Uh, to what extent will I have more deadweight losses, which means very much that you lose productive uh, output uh, versus the revenue that I gain? Because you know the funny thing about taxation is that, especially this type of taxation, if you introduce E-Levy and it somehow depresses consumption, you then lose immediately on the consumption tax rate. So you lose more VAT or other types of consumption taxes. So in a way, different taxes interconnect with different taxes to determine the total revenue take, which is why the government, after increasing uh, com communication service tax, has seen when they've done that, that actual or total revenue take goes down, as opposed to goes up when they increase the rate. Because there's funny ways in which they interconnect. And we are expected at the very least some modeling that shows the interconnections and the trade-offs. So if we, we have this exemption, what would that mean? for total revenue, what would that mean for economic activity, and how would that impact our other taxes, et cetera, et cetera. There's none of that was done. Literally, no, not a single paper had been written about how all of these things have been talked to. They have just gone to parliament, introduced, and at that time, they hadn't even introduced the full set of exemptions and the, the cap. They were still, you know, those things matters had been left as administrative, you know, they will leave it to G, GRE to, to determine. It makes no sense whatsoever. So my position and the position of some of the people in the money was that until we had some degree of clarity about the way this thing was designed, our best purpose uh, was to introduce a, a, a much more detailed debate about the options of how you do this, what will, you know, what will be the trade-offs, what would this mean? And so we never conclusively came out with a clear position for that specific reason. Of course, there were individual cinemas who were just outright opposed to the very notion of taxing uh, transfers, which is which is itself a valid position in some respects, um, that you know certain you know just by just taxing transfers, um, you you negate for them and uh, the principles of good taxation, because good taxation is often to target an underlying economic activity, so somebody simply just moving money around, uh, does not always align with fundamental economic activity because some of those movements may not map to transactions, um, you know. So some and, and some of them will also not be economic transactions, moving money to your kid 
or your mom or moving from one account to another if you have two different businesses um, and you know you are, you, are, you are doing management of uh, reserves and, and things like that um, it'd be difficult in order in order not to uh, pretend that every movement of money represents a transaction then to suppose that a tax that you and typically taxes are aligned with economic activity a tax that is simply tax and transfer so those were interesting arguments the truth though is that depending on how you designed it you could potentially capture transactions in which case then it would not be different from any type of tax that taxes economic activity so if you went and bought milo the government thinks well you're getting value from the milo and somehow my contributions allow you to enjoy your milo so i, I want tax off that right and the question is if you were sending money to pay for something and that thing was potentially exempt from VAT, but you are getting additional convenience for which reason you are buying more. Maybe that means, therefore, that there is a reason why there is new economic activity, which, therefore, some kind of tax could attract. But the point was we didn't even get there because, like I've pointed out, we live in a period where there is very little true debate about policy. So my position will be that we never really got to discuss the policy detail of E-Levy because the machinery for that kind of discussion, the deliberative machinery in the media, in the uh, in academia, in specialist literature, um, in, in parliament, it's all been seriously damaged nowadays because of our focus primarily on patronage politics. And even the people that are supposed to be playing the policy game, the actual senior politicians and senior bureaucrats are not doing enough policy thinking. Um, so that would be my initial reaction. Then I'll take on the following questions. Yeah, so... As a learning curve for everyone on this call, what should be, using the E-Levy as a case study, what should have been the process um, using cross-stakeholder partnerships, CSO engagements, et cetera? What should have been the process for something like that to have become accepted um, as something that would then go on to parliament uh, and in the budgetary um, discussion? The, the first thing should have been some kind of blue paper some kind of like rough draft of the government's general position on, on, on the history of taxation, how it's impacted us, how we've had to evolve to try and uh, implement taxation that genuinely corresponds to economic activity, that does not disincentivize uh, productivity and hard work, et cetera, et cetera. And then suggest that because of digitalization, the rest of it, we are coming up with, we are trying to come up with ways in which different types of taxes uh, will be re-engineered to... Um, to reflect the changing nature of the economy. And then they will have distinguished carefully between uh, the taxes that they are trying to put on social media activity and other activities that have been using digital tools, which they've now implemented. And from first April on was, they're trying to get everybody who makes a little money online to pay tax, right? So we say, okay, how is that different from um, transfers? Well, what is it about transfers that makes you feel that unless you are taxing transfers, you will not be able to get the money as opposed to finding other ways to tax economic activity so that when economic activity increases and people are making more money, they pay their fair share to our collective welfare, which is the whole point of taxation. If the system that has been put together uh, from a public policy point of view is making you rich, or at least making you a little richer, then you should also contribute back to that kitty so that that will be used to continue to support you. Then after you know a robust debate around, and this will have typically in the United Kingdom, for instance, it will have gone to something like the Mansion House speech. The Chancellor will have gone there. He will have the, the government spin doctors will have done briefings of editors, and there will be you know pro government articles already in in the graphic and elsewhere. Think tanks will have been roused. Some of them will have written back. 
there will have been debate, there have been popular lectures by important public intellectuals. And then we'll get a sense of the country's, not only the country's mood, but generally the quality of the thinking. Finally, the government issues a white paper, which in, in a sense, that it has this imprimatur on this. It's like we've thought this through and we think this is the right way forward. And then subject that to further debate, this matter could even have been something where, um, rather than just introducing the budget, the, the actual legislation, the, legis you know, the, the, the bill, uh, could have been considered in, in advance of the, of the budget. So basically, you can have a law about how you set up a structure or monitor and all of those things before you then incorporate that into the appropriations process. Um, needless to say, none of that happened. I mean, and up to date, they don't acknowledge that. They don't acknowledge that what they did was appallingly uh, incompetent in terms of the way it was introduced, in terms of the way that the debate was instigated. They, they just literally are aloof. Um, and uh, they, they go out, going around making it look like, um, you know, this should have been evident or something. People should immediately have realized that your taxes are right. So anything, any kind of tax you introduce is sensible. Of course, you can decide to tax the air people brief, right? You can decide that, you know, anytime somebody winks at somebody, you know, there should be a tax. The logic of it has to be evidence through real analysis. The government should show that they've thought through this, they've uh, considered the consequences, they've de debated it with other people, and through those efforts, they've come to the conclusion that this was wise. None of that was done whatsoever. Which brings me to what I feel that in policymaking in our part of the world, uh, we are trapped in this cycle of three Cs. The first C is, the, is this tendency to be driven by crisis. So crisis is the first C. Most policies, including taxation policies, are driven by crisis mindset and a crisis mode of decision making. The second C is consultation and understanding of what meaningful consultation you know, you know, represents. Weren't you shocked when they then assembled a group of ministers, uh, choreographed what they purported to, to represent you know, consultation, none of the serious critics of the policy were invited, nobody from identifiable groups like trade unions, tank, tank tanks, society organizations that are involved in um, uh, issues of economic and social matters and affairs were invited. And what was this consultation? Was there a set of issues that they wished to understand what the sentiment was? Were there options they were weighing and for which they needed inputs? No. What they thought was, what they call a consultation, literally you, you bring a group of people there and you tell them why this is, is useful and then you make a pretense of listening to them and you move on. I mean, this is a mockery of policymaking. This is a mockery of everything that serious government should stand for. That's what we saw. And it's still going on around using our money moving from town to town, more or less just doing propaganda for the government. That's not consultation. The third is what I call confusion or perennial confusion. And you can also describe it as an issue of coherence, policy coherence. We have a situation where every year we adjust VATs, you know. So most people are not aware, but we did not just all of a sudden in 1995 introduce VAT as a complete new category of tax. Actually, VAT was brought to replace the sales and service tax because of the nature of uh, the VAT structure with this input um, model, the view was that it's a better tracker of economic activity and therefore a better way to tax final consumption. That was why VAT was introduced. It was not a new way to raise money, but a way of re-engineering existing sales and service tax to be better. Now, since then, we randomly try and push that. Let me make a very quick explanation. I'm not sure how familiar this audience is with general taxation, but you have two ways of doing consumption taxing, broadly speaking. You have one where you try and tax at different stages 
But every time you tax at a different stage, you don't want it to cascade and accumulate. So what you do is that you try and offset it at the next stage. So that would mean that if I'm a manufacturer, I pay VAT. But if I pay VAT, I try and get it from the next stage of production, from the distribution. If I distribution pays VAT, I try and get it at the retailer. So the, the retailer will, uh, um, the VAT that the retailer paid, uh, the final VAT that you pay is the net of all the offsets in between the different stages of production. That's a classic way of doing that. The other way of doing that is to have a flat rate at every level, but a lower one. So we don't really want VAT to be this way. I go and buy maize and I pay 18%. Then I add it to my price. Then somebody go and buy the maize and he makes kinky balls. And then he has 18% to it. And then he, he sends it to someone that is doing packaging of the kinky. Then he has 18% to it. And then by the time it gets you, the tax, the actual effective tax rate is like 100% of the kinky. That would be ridiculous. So what we try to do is we say, okay, you can re, you know, do inputs. Uh, you can record this as input tax and reclaim it at the different levels. So by the time we get to the consumer, we have a final tax rate. Or you would simply tax a smaller rate at each level. And by the time it gets to the final consumer, the, the total effect is now apparent. These different methods have huge implications for how you collect the effectiveness of collection. In fact, we even introduced something called agents who are supposed to be withhold the VAT rather than you pay it on and then somebody then have to then declare again and pay. You can withhold the VAT component if you're an agent uh, before you pass it on. All of these things have different effects on the collection rate, on the on the on the cost of main administering administering the tax, on compliance because of burden issues. We don't think of any through any of this stuff. We just keep you know thinking of them as administrative matters. Every every year, the the, the minister of finance goes there and introduces a new type of VAT arrangement. Sometimes a three percent um, uh, final rate at retail level. But if you are not a retailer, then it's twelve point five percent. Oh, and then you also have to consider NHIL and the rest. And, but it's all messed up. It's all confusing. And there's never been a time when it's been informed by real policy debate. Never. So we have situations where we are not even clear what is the optimal way of taxing consumption in Ghana because there's no established policy direction. Now, okay, based on 20 years of doing this, actually, now if you think of, you know, new VAT have been introduced in 1998, we've now had, what, 24 years to think through VAT. And we still don't have clarity as to what the Ghanaian state thinks is the optimal way of doing it. And then maybe when, you know, empirical evidence suggests one or the other path may be better, we, we benchmark that against the uh, the method that we thought is the best proven uh, mechanism for maximize uh, collections, reducing burden, and reducing the impact on productivity. None of that exists today in, in terms of consumption taxation, particularly VAT and sales tax type taxation. So that is what I meant by confusion or the lack of coherence. We have to recall also, now I'm going back to the two other the issues that I raised, the crisis and um, the issue around consultation. Though I think, in the case of Ilevi, made a good case for uh, consultation being a really problematic aspect of the way we do we do policy making in Africa. So let me maybe I'll focus on crisis. You know, we the, this country for a very long time there was no effective taxation method because of the colonial history. When the colonials came to power in 1852, they decided that well, you know, like I told you already. We've, we are the guys that have been running this protection racket for you, protecting you from each other. Uh, and for that, you got to pay for the administration. But over time, from 1900 onwards, after the last Asante War, the British were in the position to maintain total control over Ghana. 
for what became Ghana. So real colonialism started around 1870s onwards when Ashanti power had been broken and British power was dominant on the coast. In that sense, we never really had full colonialism for more than about 70 years in our history. And, for, and, and even then, it was only in the southern part of Ghana that it started at that point. Areas like Asante and the Northern Territories only started seeing effective colonial administration after 1900. And they were, they were under colonial rule for about 56 years. So this notion that we've spent hundreds of years under colonialism is completely wrong. Then in the 1900s, once the British had brought all these protectorates together and the rest, they needed taxation. They had tried it in 1852 by introducing the poll tax, which was some kind of broad income tax, a low flat tax, six, three pence, but then by because of inflation, by the time that we have the first set of you know detailed accounts, we are kind of our six pence. So small amounts of money, a few um, um, you know um, cities in, in today's terms. And they wanted every person, individual, every uh, adult to be charged this amount. The chiefs were to collect it and just remit it. Um, initially, that's what they thought. Then they said, no, we actually sent agents, prominent people who will be agents of the crown, and basically the crown in Ghana, so the colonial authority. And they will go around and collect this in the southern territories. Remember that in 1852, Asante was still not part of the, the colony. Um, the northern territories were not part of the colony because the northern territories were more or less suzerain um, 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 areas under Asante control. Now, they could have made this a matter of tribute. So basically, they would say, okay, this kingdom, we will take this from this kingdom. It's up to the chief to figure out the means to do the administration. They considered all of those and decided, no, they have to be direct. So basically, they will send agents, they will come into your, 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 your community and they will collect this money naturally led to rebellion. But what people don't recognize is that actually for three years, people paid the poll tax. And the problems with the poll tax and people beginning to realize that actually it's a regressive tax. It doesn't matter how much you earn. They just charge it over everybody. They don't have a real census numbers. So what we're doing was, you know, uh, more or less using harassment to collect the taxes. If they feel we have too little taxes from here, then it means that people are evading. So it was badly designed. It's all I'm trying to say. And because it's been driven by increase in administrative costs based on intermittent Asante invasions of the South, which had risen or raised the cost of governing, the, the crisis mind, mindset meant that there was very little consultation. In fact, when they brought the chiefs into the castle to have a debate about this, before the chiefs could uh, make their input, Bannerman rose up, who was you know, a very strong affiliate, was a local merchant, a very strong affiliate of the, of the local government, rose up and said, we are willing to pay. And almost no other chief could then you know, come across as being opposed to the, to the governor in, in the fort. And then they agreed to this under more or less under, 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 under um, uh, a kind of blackmail. When the matter went into the, into the public domain, people were like, why is this going on? Why is this going on? Long story short, we had massive rebellions there were 3,000 people that armed themselves to go and uh, attack the fort. Luckily, there was no massacre because the, 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 the right person, you know, the person, somebody in the, in the fort took a decision not to open the cannons. And eventually, because of violence, the poll tax was then, was then thrown out. From that time onwards, the only way the British could, gain, to get, could get money to, to run the country was through something called the land poll. And the land poll was something that was linked primarily to access to property. Attempts to introduce income tax were continually resisted because the structure of colonial government implied a crisis of legitimacy. People did not consider the government legitimate enough to take their money. It was not until 1943, in the heat of another crisis, the World War, 
which was bankrupting Britain, that they managed to convince the, the local elite that income tax was the only way out, and the income tax ordinance was then passed. Not long thereafter, they had to then give in to allow majority African representation on the Legislative Council through the Bank's constitution. And by the time they had done that and therefore increased the rate of income tax, already people were up in arms and a lot of the agitation for independence built around issues of taxation until 1948 when the Watson Commission declared the Bank's constitution as outmoded at best and proposed a new constitution. And in 1951, we had more or less more, more local government. So if you look at the history of taxation in, in, in Ghana or what became Ghana and then Ghana, it's very evident that the only time we really come to grips with this notion of twinning taxation with representation and twinning taxation with legitimacy of government is when we are in crisis. And it's obvious that now Ghana is in crisis. Um, you know, when the Fitch rating came out a day later, you wrote an article trying to um, discuss if Ghana is broke. The government came out to dismiss that the Fitch rating should be dismissed etc etc in 2016 you also wrote an article where you kind of put two precedents debt to export and debt to government revenue as the two major things more than debt to gdp that defines whether a country is going towards hippic levels so going back on those articles that you wrote do you maintain um what is your position on whether Ghana is broke now? As the government is trying to make it seem that it almost seems that the e-levy is the only way that government can make money out of this um, fiscal crisis that we're in. Okay, um, a process question first. Is there going to be Q&A or there's not going to be Q&A? Because if there's um, going to be Q&A, we probably have to increase the time by a little uh, to accommodate yeah. them by 10 minutes yeah. or something like that. There's going to be yeah, Q&A. Okay, sure, sure, sure. Five minutes for okay. Q&A, yeah. Okay. So... I think for, um, um, I mean, I guess I have to make some few remarks about E-Levy before I go into this, very quick remarks. I think one is that most people don't realize that even today, the E-Levy is so badly designed that once it's introduced, it is then that we will see the ripple effects. Um, it as if they ever managed to get their numbers and, and pass it through parliament, which at some point they will try and do uh, at multiple phases. But it's only then we will actually see the effects. And because we don't have time, I can't show you how choosing one exemption criteria versus another uh, could have huge effects. Why, if you don't cap it? Because right now they don't cap it. So if you if you send a million dollars out, they will charge you seventeen point something thousand dollars, um, etc. As opposed to having a cap. So all of those matters up to date, even now, nobody has been able to have a serious debate with the government about design issue, about design issue. So that's a very important point. On the issue of whether or not Ghana is broke, which is you know, basically the fiscal crisis that we are currently in, which is more, one, one of the reasons why we are thinking of e So basically, if that crisis had not occurred, they would not have thought about comprehensively how do you handle the taxation. You will not believe how quickly uh, the GRA rushed to introduce taxation of social media and other online services. Literally, within three months, they had got the British government to give them some consultants who have very little understanding of Ghana's uh, full ethnographic picture and gone ahead and, you know, without even following fully the prescriptions that were said and all the issues, just gone ahead and randomly implemented the same uh, level of VAT on digital service as exists on, in the offline market. Makes absolutely no sense because you need to understand that an online economy is a global economy. So when you are uh, imposing tax levels or rates on an online economy, you need to take into account comparative um, 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 uh, uh, rates 
in the countries in which you are potential competitor. What does that mean? It means that I am likely to base my business elsewhere in the digital realm because I can if I think your taxes are too high. How will I do that? I simply make my residency somewhere else. I mean, if I think that because of Ghana's uh, 17 point something 5% and Nigeria is charging 7.5% and some people in East Africa are even charging 1.5%, I will use all the tools that are today available to me to situate my online business somewhere else. It's a matter of just establishing residence in whatever format that I can use. Get a, a virtual office, uh, get virtual staff. And before you realize, I'm not based in Ghana. So, Mr. Facebook, you can charge me the Ghana rate. We simply do not allow any serious analysis in making policy in Ghana. It's unbelievable. Literally, they just get up in a huge rush uh, under panic and they introduce policies. And so that's what we have with digital taxation now. But uh, this is just me ranting now. But go back to the, the you know the more careful debate that we are we are engaging. And sometimes I get passionate and, and I lose myself. But to get back to the more um, careful debate we are, uh, discussion we currently have, the issue around the fiscal crisis is that every couple of cycles, Ghana gets very ambitious. And it's been happening since uh, Osajefo of blessed memory days. We get very ambitious about thinking we are a very special country in Africa and we should grow much more rapidly. And then we introduce really ambitious policies, which we don't think through carefully in terms of um, how quickly they will have return on investment and how quickly that will lead to GDP changes and how quickly that will lead to tax revenue and how therefore we'll be able to pay for those massive investments. And we have these cycles over time. In 1961 to 65, we accelerated investment, downplayed agriculture. We wanted to industrialize as quickly as possible built a bunch of factories that were not all fully interconnected with each other. And then by 65, we were already in huge, huge mess. We were in a huge mess. So we wrote to the IMF and then we started to fight with them over you know, the terms of trying to get um, a bailout. Osajib could not agree on the, on the terms until the very, you know, literally to the day he was moved. You know, it was still back and forth with the IMF. The new government comes and goes like, damn, we had a big crisis. Um, we, we can't pay the debt. We need restructuring. And then they managed to get more than half of our debts through restructuring and, in some cases, forgiveness um, um, taken away, which massively reduced um, service and how much we pay uh, to, to, to either on interest or a retirement of principal every year. Having done that, they then handed over to the, the civilian government. As you recall, uh, in 69, civilian re rule returned to Ghana. And then they discovered that, you know, they still couldn't pay, even after all the restructuring and the rest of it. So we had the famous London Debt Conference in Marlborough House in 1970. And by 1971, this was under the tutelage of the British. So the British seemed to be very involved whenever we had a fiscal crisis. You know, they are the ones guiding us on this digital tax thing. And then in 1970, they were also the ones that were bringing together all our creditors to, to see what they can do for Ghana. Eventually, we had a lot of restructuring and more than half of the debt, about 47%, uh, so almost half the debt, um, was restructured in a way, either forgiveness or longer term, uh, reprofiling and things like that. And then when the Champon government came to party, they said, oh, no, 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 there's another crisis. We have the, the, the famous uh, oil shock, blah, 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 blah. We can't pay. And then we went through another round of negotiating with our debtors until about half the debt you know, was also reprofiled. And then in 1980, the government changes again and the, the new government comes, oh, yeah, 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 there's a crisis. We have a drought. We have this. We can't pay. And then we went through another default process and restructuring until we went into structural adjustment, which by its nature 
led to restructuring of the debt until we got into the 90s in a fairly strong position. Growth was on the upswing and the rest of it. Until by 1993, 1994, we're back to we can pay our debts. 1999, we're, 1997, we had qualified under the Cologne arrangement um, for debt relief, but we refused to do it um, in 1998 when a lot of the other countries started. And then in 2001, the new government was like, this crisis is too much. So they went under HIPIC. And through HIPIC, more or less 100% of our serious uh, debt was wiped away. I think we had like $780 million left, which was primarily concessional debt. Now, having had huge multilateral debt relief, you know, huge amount of multilateral debt relief, I think about $6 billion if you adjust for inflation and if you had a fantastic and, and all of that, through HIPIC, we are back in the situation where we are worse off than HIPIC. Around HIPIC, the issues were that you know, we had about 250% of revenue in debt, you know, so that was a big issue. If, if you know, uh, 2.5 times the amount of money you earn in a year is your debt, um, then your debt is very high. Today, we have more than 500%, basically five, 540%, like 5.5% of the revenues you make in the country is debt. So we keep going back in cycles. And the reason is that we have these investment strategies that are not linked to return on investment, and periodically we get into these shocks. So, so whether or not you compare it to exports, which hasn't changed very much, we've moved from a monocrop economy where cocoa was like 60%, uh, say at one point 80% of all our external revenues were cocoa. The only thing that has changed is that around 1995, gold became equally important, and around 2010, oil became equally important. So now we have three primary commodities, oil, gold, and cocoa. And almost all the massive growth in GDP from around $15 billion uh, in about 15 years ago or thereabout to 60-something billion, $65 billion today. So almost quadrupling of GDP that we've seen uh, in, in just a little over a decade. All of that has been because there's been a boom in primary commodities. We've had a commodity super cycle that were booming in, in, in commodity prices. Very little of that has happened because of transformation in the nature of the industries that exist in Ghana due to how we've spent our taxes. Ghana is today the largest borrower of euro bonds if you compare it to the size of our GDP. I've not found any other country. In the case of Africa, I've checked for every country. Every other country I check for, Ghana comes up on top. Euro bonds are now about half of all the debt we own, about $13 billion out of the $26 billion or so external debt. And much of that is problematic because it's very high cost. Whenever we go and borrow, they look at us and they say, these people are desperate for money. And they give us rates that are about 7% and above, an average risk trend above 8%. That's hugely problematic. Today, the cost of holding Ghana debt, the, 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 the fee for holding Ghana debt, what you charge to hold Ghana's debt, is in excess of 15%. That is in dollar terms. If you were to translate that into uh, local currency terms, that's excess of 30%. So people think that the, Ghana, the government of Ghana is so not credit-worthy that if you're going to lend government money to the government of Ghana, you need to charge them 30%. That is ridiculous. So that's where we are, Daniel. Yes, thank you very much, Bright. Um, one last question before I give it to the audience. Um, I know just yesterday, the MPC came out and our policy rate has been increased to 17%. The government of uh, the Bank of Ghana is hoping that we are going to increase our cash reserves. I mean, you probably haven't had time to think about it, but do you have any first reactions to that? Well, I've, I've read the MPC report. Um, you know, I'm still in the think tank business. That I'm primarily an entrepreneur, so we have to read these reports. Um, and on the, on the whole, it's um, you know a fair summary of the situation and an attempt to be you know give a professional judgment. What I'm not too clear about, though, 
is the way in which almost all the data points to a lowering of demand. You know, the pressures that are building the economy in terms of very low business sentiment. Business sentiment is collapsing. It's unbelievable. Just read the report. Consumer sentiment is collapsing less uh, steeply, but it's still collapsing. So people don't think the outlook looks good and are not spending. And we see that in a reflection in terms of the composite index of economic activity. So those of you that are not familiar with it, there are a number of surveys that the Bank of Ghana runs and they don't do a good job of publicizing them. So people don't pay attention to it. That's why things all of a sudden look like, you know, a sudden crisis. But if you pay attention to the purchasing management, uh, purchasing managers index, the composite index of economic activity and these other surveys that they do, including the sentiment surveys. And all of them seem to point to a coming collapse of demand. What it means is this, people are going to spend less. If when people are going, to, when people start spending less, you have serious pressures on business, because what you you, you often get is uh, a lower in demand for business output. Um, that often has an impact in many many ways, including on tax generation, because of the high degree to which income and consumption taxes complement each other in Ghana, um, and and the way that when you look at uh, you did regressions and the rest of it, the way that they are intertwined. What that means, therefore, is that we have massive revenue pressures in the country. The government, the GRA will not be able to meet its targets. 80 billion cities means that every quarter they need to get 20 billion cities in tax. It also means that every month they need to get in excess of 6.5 billion cities every month in tax. If demand is falling, people are not paying enough VAT, people are not declaring enough income, you won't get that money. So you're going to have huge effects across the economy in terms of the ability of the government to meet its fiscal deficit and the rest of it. All of those issues will lead to inflation because government will be forced, I think, to start uh, um, some degree of quantitative easing by putting a lot of pressure on the Bank of Ghana to finance the deficit again, which is something that we pledge we will not be doing. Um, so zero financing of the, of, the, of, the, of, the, of the deficit by the central bank is something that is going to go into history. We're also going to have to liquidate some of the reserves, you know, the nine point something you know, billion dollars in reserves that the, the Bank of Ghana are going to liquidate some of that to protect the currency. All of those will reinforce cycles of inflation and exchange rate depreciation and the likes of it. So I'm not too sure why the central bank feels that they need to moderate inflation uh, by, you know, forcing, um, uh, in, sorry, incentivizing savings. Because this massive growth in the, the, the base rate, what would, that, what would that achieve? It's very simple, right? It, it has some kind of knock-on effect on how people feel that they should then lend to the government too. And if the government is going to be borrowing more, people will be saving more because that's, it's, a, it's a trend effect. If the government is borrowing more, you're buying treasury bills and the nature of this is actually a form of saving as opposed to investing. Now, my view is that this will be pro-cyclical. And I know economists may disagree and there are far better economists uh, uh, in the country than I have ever been to position this matter fairly. But if you take procyclical measures in the heat of a crisis, you are worsening things. So my view is this might actually lead to more pressures for uh, on demand, uh, which will not satisfy the current crisis that we have, which is, because, but the attempt to fight inflation at all costs in a context like this when you have demand about to collapse is I think frightening. Um, but they, they kind of feel that we may get into a tailspin uh, of inflation, which will have huge effect. Well, this has been the Change Africa podcast with Bryce Simmons, and we are talking policy, the E-Levy. My name is Isaac Ojede Um We have time for just about two questions in the next five minutes, so we round up the conversation. If 
you want to ask a question, you can use the request button to do that. Yeah, you could go ahead. Yeah, yeah. I, I just want to touch a bit on the exchange rate and how it's been moving. I mean, if you look at our history, um, I mean, it's a currency that is persistently depreciating. Um, there's never a period of sustained appreciation or even stability. So to me, the way I look at it, I, I don't think this battle of having a, a stable exchange rate regime is something that we can win. I mean, we've changed governments. We've had different uh, finance ministers. We've had different uh, uh, governors at the central bank. And it keeps depreciating year on year. I mean, each year it moves against us. So my question really is, um, what could, for example, be the downsides if Ghana adopted the USD as official currency? Um, I know that, for example, uh, in some of my, through some of my little reading, that a country like Ecuador once did that, um, adopted the USD because they were faced with some very serious uh, economic challenges, fast depreciating currency and that kind of thing. And if you look at our situation, a lot of our debt is also uh, foreign denominated. And so whenever the currency moves, that also works against us. So what, for example, could be the downsides if we adopted the USD as an official currency of the country? Okay. Uh, I mean, still, the, the majority of our debt is still domestic, um, but you are right. The foreign component has increased and is now almost at par. On dollarization, there's a very extensive specialist literature on this. So I, I want to be careful. Um, and I'd rather, you know, maybe through Daniel, um, circulate some specific resource. Maybe people can send questions to Daniel that they will want specific um, um, resources on. Because I think you, need, you deserve the best answer that the literature has to say. And I'm not completely abreast with it. But there's a lot of literature on small economies that adopt the dollar. Uh, we have some evidence also coming in from Zimbabwe, which, uh, you know, as you know, has been vacillating between dollarization and the use of RTGS instruments, uh, which is a digital kind of currency for, for uh, digital in a very odd kind of way um, in, in, um, uh, for a while now. So we have some evidence that dollarization uh, is complex. The, it depends on some of the empirical measures. But of course, I can give you the political economy response. The political economy response is that if you dollarize, it means that you, don't, you can't print your currency. So the ability to use quantitative easing when it's uh, uh, seen as necessary, maybe a last resort, but necessary, uh, is taken away from you because you, know, you literally have to earn all the dollars that you need to spend in the economy. And, and that, that, that certainly can be challenging. It also exposes you a lot more to U.S. rate hikes than you have today. Today, we are semi-shielded. Um, of course, it, has a, it still has a huge impact on us because of our uh, external exposure to borrowing on the Eurobond market. So every time the U.S. Remember that in the Eurobond market or other types of uh, other international capital market um, situations, what happens is that the investor is comparing how much you can get from Ghana versus how much you can get from the safest countries. So in the Eurobond, that's Germany, right? It's the bond. So the Germans are seen as the safest economy in Europe. So you take the German treasury and you say, okay, if I give the German government money, they will give me 0. Point something percent or 1% or whatever. Like I've not looked at the latest rate. Uh, so that is the lowest I can accept in the world because if I can get that money from the Germans, why will I go and give money to anyone? So anything that Ghana gives us be above that and the spread, what we often call the spread, is the difference between what the safest governments get and what we, the Sankwas governments get. So that's what we call the spread. 
And if you look at the way the spread works, every time they save governments, increase the rates, that's if they are willing to pay more to investors, for investors to lend to them. Then investors increase hours automatically because why would I give you money when I can give to the Germans? So whatever the Germans increase, I'll increase my a little bit in correspondence. And that is what we call the spread. So if you use dollar rates, um, if you use the dollar loan, that means that every time we have dynamics in the, in the world market where the U.S. government you know, hikes rates, we will have the exposure immediate and in a more comprehensive manner than is the current situation. Of course, those rates tend to be smaller than the way movements in, in rates and other policy measures tend to happen in Ghana. But like I said, this is a much more, it's a very deep subject. There's a lot of specialist literature on it. I'd rather send you some of that specialist literature so you, you look at it yourself. On the issue of the, the dollar and issues in Ghana, you are right. It's a, multi, it's a multidimensional issue and it's very difficult. I mean, you have to literally recalibrate a lot. of So you don't have, you, you, you can't, you, you almost have to feel sorry for, you can't feel sorry enough for the Monetary Policy Committee when, when you are dealing with this. Two, two or three remarks I can make on that. One is we should think that it's all about export balance, sorry, trade balance. Um, and therefore, if we could import less and export more without any further analysis, that would be the, the trick. It's, it's unfortunately not true. I've been looking a lot at countries in Africa that actually have a very bad trade balance. And I was surprised to learn that Kenya is one of them. So believe me, believe me or not, uh, Kenya literally exports about only $7 billion of, of goods out of the country because they don't have a lot of primary commodities. Ghana does what? $13 billion to $14 billion? So we, we, we export almost double what Kenya does. And Kenya has a $100 billion GDP. We have a $65 billion, $70 billion GDP. Why? Because a lot of the Kenyan activities in now, they've made that country a hub for attracting forex for all manner of activities. So some of them are bringing in for FDI purposes to invest in the country. Some of my international organizations that are holding their reserves there. Some of them are regional companies that like to hold their money in Kenya because you have moved money from Kenya easily. So they have used the liberal instruments to their fullest degree. So Kenya has huge trade deficits. We have a trade surplus. In fact, our trade surplus just moderated in the latest account, which is interesting. Even as our oil production has been collapsing, prices of commodities have been rising generally, preventing us from seeing major pressures. So in the past, a lot of our forest issues were due to shifts in pricing of primary commodities on the international market. But because of the commodity super cycle, Generally, that has been in the trend that favors us. So generally, our cocoa, gold, and oil are, has been getting good prices over the last decade and more, generally. That's why I say it's a super cycle, not a, a traditional cycle. Okay, right. Let's so, pick up some um, two questions and we'll go. Um, okay. five, two seconds, just three seconds and I'll end it. Yeah. So in that regard, the imports, the issues are not the trade in goods. A lot of it's now in the trade in services area and the reasons people don't want to hold money in Ghana what we call portfolio reversals. So people that came to use dollars to buy our bonds and things like that, who are now not willing to buy our bonds and are moving money out. So in short, instead of the pure focus on goods, what we, we produce locally and what we import, now the pressure is anything that keeps dollars in Ghana is an issue. So that will include the way we design our financial markets, etc. Et and you can see that when you look at the current accounts uh, where we have a big deficit, notwithstanding the trade balance. Sorry about that, Daniel. Please proceed. Hey, um, NK, briefly. Hi, Daniel. Um, thanks for the opportunity. Bright, thank you so much for um, um, your talk. It was really insightful. The question I have to ask is on navigating access to public information in order to participate, you know, make comments on policy, like, like much like you do. 
And it's a bit of a personal question here. How do you, as someone, or how does someone looking to get into the policy space, you know, navigate accessing some of this information that we find that successive governments have been particularly secret, secretive with? Personally, I, 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 I follow the, um, I follow, you know, following people in public policy spaces such as yourself in order to either read your thoughts or the thoughts of other people who comment on these things that affect shaping the Guinean economy. But I find that when I'm trying to access, you know, reports by the government or reports that should be available through the Ministry of Finance, I keep hitting a a stone wall. Like, what would you recommend in terms of trying to access the information that then makes it possible to engage properly um, um, on some of these issues that, that, affect the Guardian economy? No, you are completely right. We have a big problem with um, almost like a structural inaccount- uh, lack of accountability. You know, the, the government agencies just don't see that they need to put things in writing and circulate them. And there is a, a tendency in which people think they own public in, uh, government information and, 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 and so they keep things in their head rather than write them down. So we need to have ways in which we definitely push for them to write things down Part of that is informal queries and, and, and stuff like that. But on the whole, the way I have discovered it is that we don't respect policy analysis as a discipline. So people often say, oh, why do you comment on everything? Forgetting that whenever I'm commenting, I'm commenting on the public policy dimension of it, not necessarily any other aspects of it. So I'm not, I will not do econometrics, but I'll look at the public policy aspects of which will include use of accountability, transparency, et cetera, et cetera. And I think until we get to a point where we respect public policy analysis as a discipline, we will have challenges because we will not have enough real policy analysts who push for a debate on these matters, in which case government is forced to reduce things into writing. In terms of practical things of what you can actually do yourself, one, a lot of the data is not where you think it is. So you will, you will find that you are looking for data on health and you are looking on the Ministry of Health website, but the best place may be to look at the medium-term expenditure framework documents because the Ministry of Health is forced under our public financial management and other governance instruments to explain its medium-term strategy to the Ministry of Finance. And so it has to create an MTEF. And it is where you often go and see information that you think should be on the Ministry of Health website or should publish a report, and they won't. But then in the MTEF, they have to establish their indicators, they have to prove their targets, they have to do all bad of things, because otherwise the Ministry of Finance is not going to give them their money. So you'll be surprised to learn that often you get enough, not, in, not enough, to be entirely honest, but you get some much more information that you think you can find if you know where to look. And I'm giving you, going to give you a few examples. One of them is certainly anything that, you know, individual entities, mean what we call the MDAs in Ghana, Ministry Department Agencies, every time they are required by some law to be accountable. So in energy, for instance, they are required to make submissions to the Public Interest Accountability Committee. So you need to be reading a lot about the, what we call PIAC, PIAC reports, if you want to understand energy in Ghana. You need to be reading, uh, reading uh, Auditor General reports if you want to understand performance in any ministry in Ghana, though it's itself not very good quality. You need to be reading some of the uh, statistical general reports that are periodics, not the ones that you, you, you know, everybody kind of thinks about the census reports and the rest of it, but some of the periodics. Uh, so in short, this is also one of the areas where I might consider perhaps in future providing some practical guidelines for people that are interested. Yeah, um, and Kay, Imani is also hiring, so if you're interested in the space, the last time I know Bright shared that, so if you have a, a PhD or, or master's in that area, you can definitely check that out. Uh, Manko, Daniel wants to ask a question. Yeah, um, I know we are running out of time, but I have a more general question. And Bright, you mentioned that you have become 
more empirical over time. And then ironically, how policy making in Ghana has gotten more patronage based, so kind of non-empirical. So my question to you is, how can we as a society, not just in politics, develop a more reason-based and more empirical uh, discussion culture? That's a great question, Daniel. Um, yes, I've grown more empirical because we, we live now in an opinion economy and attention is very uh, expensive and um, there's just so much competing, um, I won't say noise, right? But there's just so much competing uh, interests for public attention. Part of that is uh, capitalism, right? The, we, we, have, we live in a world of uh, digital capitalism, where, sorry, digital um, uh, um, opinion capitalism, where a lot of people, because they can make um, an, a living from having opinions, um, have now flooded the, 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 the public um, square. So it become very difficult for people to stand out or to get their voices heard. Um, and that has meant, therefore, that you have to differentiate somehow. And I have found that people need utility. So some, of, some people will reach out to me privately and say, well, you know, I, I'm not sure I agree with you and I'm not sure I fully understand what it is that you're trying to push. But I like the fact that you, you introduce some statistics or things that can allow me to independently make my own mind. So I've decided to prioritize um, providing empirical evidence as much as I can because that somehow uh, is a bit uh, increasing the utility of people that uh, um, follow the public debate. Uh, as opposed to joining the opinion uh, uh, ranks. So that is my personal reason. In terms of what we can do to push more empiricism, I don't think you need empiricism to the exclusion of other very valuable aspects of uh, analysis. Uh, political economy analysis is still very critical. Ethnographic. All the things that I said on this call, nobody's going to remember any of the statistics in the next two hours, right? But most people remember some of the history of crisis and things like that, about poll tax and those kind of things. Because political economy is very important. The whys are also very important. So we need both better ethnography. The problem we have now is that um, the official media is struggling to be a mirror in the society, right? They, 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 they are kind of now have also joined the ranks of people that are competing for attention, which is very problematic. So um, rather than to help us understand what is really changing in our society, most of us run around confused. There's just a lot of opinion all over the place. Part of it might be that we need to grow more specialist literature um, and, you know, so a more, a, a more diverse blogosphere, people that genuinely write small blogs about areas that they have real uh, interest and exposure to and, and, and find ways to build communities like we are trying to do with Twitter spaces and things like that so we can connect, you know. So if I know somebody is really great in how um, certification of technicians in Ghana is going and he has a blog where he talks a lot about, you know, the real estate economy, uh, situation about how to find technicians and what is happening in plumbing and things like that. Over time, they become part of the ecosystem for ideas, which then becomes the, uh, the source of input for more technical analysis. I think uh, specialist think tanks too can help. Um, think tanks that are not generalists like Imani. So we have EduWatch, which I've been very impressed to see, tries to bring a lot of clarity on matters of education in Ghana. Uh, we don't have the equivalent in health because in health, a lot of it is service delivery. But if you have a lot more think tanks in specialized areas, they will also start to produce a lot more uh, stuff. But Imani will be, decide to be generalist because the problem that faced the country in terms of the disrespect for policy was so deep that what was needed at that time was not necessarily specialized, uh, specialist uh, commentary, but general focus on policy. Thank you. Okay. Um, Atimoto School. 
All right. Thank you very much. And thank you, gentlemen, for such a wonderful discussion. My question is, uh, with the current state of the economy in Ghana, what is one growth-inducing policy that you would recommend, Mr. Simmons? And then the second part is, do you think we have enough strong local economies to build independent economies outside the national economy? Thank you. Um, can you please repeat the second question? It wasn't too clear. Thank you, sir. Uh, what I was asking is, do you think we have strong enough local economies or the potential to create local economies? Say the northern parts of the country can create its own economy, the western region part can create its own economy. Uh, that will be independent of the national economy. I mean, it may work simultaneously, but you you, you look at places like um, other parts of the world, let's say America, for instance, you, you have the states that have their local economies that are very vibrant, independent of the national economy. So whatever happens nationally does not necessarily happen and impact the local economies. I hope that is clear. Thank you. Much clearer. So I think the number one thing that, I mean, there are a lot of things that can be done in Ghana, and that's actually one of the issues. It's everywhere you look, there's, you know, things can be done better. But the one thing that I think, if we were to introduce, we have significant um, shift in our fortunes, is better management of state enterprises and other uh, administrative bodies that have an impact on the economy. And the way you do that is by introducing competitive uh, appointments. So like they do in Kenya already and some parts of East Africa, I have no idea why they want to appoint political favorites to places like Board, GMPC, um, Goyle, um, Boston. It makes absolutely no sense. Open it up, in, ask for people to apply, let people apply, have a, an open, even televised, interview processes when you finish have a, the professional panel doing the interviews justify why this person got this number of votes uh, this number of votes uh, etc and then appoint the person to go and run cocoa board I don't, I don't understand why we still have significant sections of the economy in the hands of the government that is supposed to act as stimulus for other sectors and we still think that they are matters of political um, stability of the regime as opposed to primarily economic inducing, because stability of the regime can be addressed in many different ways within the formal administrative state. When it comes to the economic touching um, uh, entities, my view is that these are matters where the government's interest should be that they generate a lot of revenue so they can use it for their political stability. I don't understand why you want to give it as a reward to somebody. It makes no sense. You can give that person a reward as a special assistant. Well, except, of course, that sometimes the view is their goal there is not just as a reward, but to help to contribute to party financing. Um, but I still think you can do party financing, but without necessarily putting um, the wrong person in, in charge of major state enterprises that have a huge impact on the economy, state housing corporation. So many of these entities, both in terms of the ability to raise revenue and the, the way that they spend in the economy and its impact and its ripple effect, are too important to be treated as uh, pure um, um, spoils of war. So I think that number one thing, competitive open appointments, uh, where people apply, you know, they, they, they advertise it, people apply, there's a, a panel that is publicly known, um, they go and sit there, they televise the interviews, after the end of the interview, they say this person won. That, that, that would make huge difference, uh, because a lot of our issues are sectoral management. We spend so much time at the top doing microfinancial management, and not enough at the different sectors. I was just reviewing one village, one dam, and I haven't even done an in-depth analysis. Just the basic surface of it is just the most ridiculous thing you've ever had. They spend millions of Ghana cities 
uh, if you 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 believe the a Greek minister, they spent about 1.4 billion CDs on this. If you believe the Minister of Special uh, Initiatives, they spent uh, almost 150 million Ghana cities on, on these dams. And yet still, they tell us that it covers 500 hectares. 500 hectares is literally like 313 farming households. In a country where if you, you take the official statistics, we have 7.3 million farming households. And if you, uh, farmers, individuals, and if you take the, uh, uh, the, 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 the civil society organizations that work in that industry, they claim it's 11.3 million individual farmers. How can you say that a policy that you spend so much money on has only benefited like 300 and something farmers? It's ridiculous. Or, or farming households. It's really ridiculous. So the management of a lot of these projects uh, where you have a special initiative like that and rather than have open competitive appointments to get a right to come and run it, you, you make it a political spoils matter. So you, you are very loyal to the parties. You go and take it. It's just ridiculous. So that has been my number one issue. In terms of um, running local economies, it's a very difficult question because it's a chicken and egg problem. Do we first have fiscal decentralization, by which we mean local government is able to um, raise and spend money in ways that make sense? Because all the countries that you've mentioned where they have these kinds of very decentralized economies, they also typically have decentralized uh, governments. So you go to the U.S., education is the hand of counties, not even states. Um, so my, my view would be that, is it first we do that so that they have responsibility and accountability and then they can raise enough money to build local infrastructure and things like that? Or do we have to figure out a way to incentivize people to move into regions and specialize the regions? So we say that, okay, you are now the national uh, center of excellence for so-and-so industry and we put in a lot of resources there and that, that will generate the, the revenue which will lead to local taxation which will then lead to decentralized government. I'm not sure which comes first. And we need to do some co-integration uh, regressions to figure out. Thank you very much, Bright. Um, my very last question, because you brought out the issue of party financing, I think that's one of the more fundamental things that is wrong with the way we look at politics in the country. We get one individual or group of individuals that are financing the party. And it's the sole aim of the party to find ways usually corrupt means to recoup that amount of money by putting those people's um, family members and associates in particular um, government agencies that leads to the decline of these um, agencies in their performance. So what do you think is the way we should rethink party financing in the country? As our very last question. We have all the laws and policies to make it a very high-risk enterprise, as the former special prosecutor used to call it, to abuse party financing. We just don't implement them. So we, we have laws that require the, uh, the Electoral Commission to be the first auditor, um, sorry, the first independent auditor of party finances. So you start off with auditing their expenditure. And you do that by using the same way that a tax audit, any kind of auditor will audit financial records, by trying to match activity to finance them. All the T-shirts that they are distributing around the country, all the things that they're doing, their rallies and the rest of it. Somebody should be able to track some of those rallies. So you do sampling, which is what you do in any kind of auditor. You visit some of their rallies, look at how much they are sharing, the rest of it. And then when they submit their audited uh, uh, accounts, try and see if the spending matches. Because if the spend, you get the spending auditing right, then it's very easy to get the, the uh, revenue side right. To say, okay, here's how much you are spending. Where is that money coming from? We want to know all the donors. Because once we know all the donors and we publicly you know, disclose the, the donors, like they do in America and elsewhere, it doesn't mean that, you know, abuse of that or of party financing will go away because there's a lot of abuse of party financing in, in, in Europe and America. But at the very least, we will understand where the problems are coming from. 
we understand who is abusing the process, who is using party financing to get um, um, projects that they, are, they don't deserve, etc., etc. So a lot of it rests at the Electoral Commission. And I know they will not do it. They will not do it because of the nature of the appointment. Because, so long as the nature of the appointment is not subject to um, some degree of opposition party involvement, and it's very much a ruling party thing, we will never be able to face campaign financing uh, or introduce campaign finance reform in Ghana. Well, thank you very much, Bryce Seaman. This has been the Change Africa podcast, our very first um, live Twitter space edition with Bryce Seaman talking policy, Ghana's Elevi, and we've had a very exciting conversation. Thank you very much for joining us. My host, um, Daniel Merki. My name is Isaac Kojoide Noabwa. I know for a very long time everyone has uh, referred to me as Bright, but I've been Isaac um, underscore Yedonu. Um, again, we'll hopefully have Bright here for this conversation. Everyone that joined us, it's been an amazing time and we hope that you enjoyed your time here. Definitely follow Bright. Um, if you are interested in Imani's work, Imani's hiring, follow Change Africa podcast, this very Twitter handle, or search Change Africa podcast everywhere you listen to your, um, your podcast, Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or any other application. Any last words, Bryce Simmons? Yes, I was just going to say thank you to you, Isaac, and Daniel uh, for the invitation and pushing me into this. I've never done this before. I didn't even know how it worked. Um, and you got me to do it. Um, so I'm, I'm very I'm very encouraged. I think all of us should learn to get abreast with the, the new forms of, of conversation that I imagine. And, and I very much uh, praise Change Africa podcast for this pioneering effort. Thank you so much. And thanks to everybody who showed up to listen. It's, 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 a, it's, a, it's a privilege and I'm very grateful. Thank you very much, Bryce Simmons. Okay, so that will be it for today's edition. We are going to happily bring more people to the podcast. Thank you.